Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Judge Richard Goldstone, a native of South Africa. He was a judge on the South African Constitutional Court from 1994 to 2003, and well known for investigating atrocities committed by white security forces during apartheid. He also is the former chief prosecutor for war crime tribunals on Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. More recently, Judge Goldstone was asked to head the United Nations fact-finding mission on the Gaza conflict that investigated allegations of war crimes between Israelis and Palestinians. Today we'll talk with Judge Goldstone about accountability for war crimes. Welcome, Judge Goldstone. Thank you very much. So what constitutes a war crime, and can you give us some examples from your experiences investigating them? Well, basically, war crimes are committed when civilians or non-belligerents, which includes prisoners of war, uh, are killed or injured, uh, where there's no military justification for that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the test is really one of proportionality. Uh, military commanders and soldiers have to choose their targets carefully, and they have to weigh up whether the military advantage to be gained by bombing or attacking uh, uh, justifies the number of civilian casualties that there may be. Mm -hmm. And of course, prisoners of war have very wide protections, and if, uh, if those are violated, that too would constitute a war crime. Okay, and can you give us some specific examples um, from Yugoslavia, well, well, I think, Rwanda? Yeah, well, I, think, I think the most egregious examples, obviously, uh, in, uh, in more recent years, the, the Holocaust stands out. Sure. Uh, but in more recent years, there was ethnic cleansing in the former Yugoslavia and the Balkans, when many tens of thousands of innocent civilians, children, women, and men, uh, were, were murdered, mm -hmm. uh, raped, tortured, uh, starved. Uh, though those are clearly very serious war crimes, and in the case of the former Yugoslavia, some amounted to genocide, and others to crimes against humanity, serious war crimes. Uh, similarly, in, in Rwanda, that was the worst uh, genocide probably since, since the Second World War with over 800,000 people slaughtered, wow. all, all civilians. Um, and uh, the, 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 these two really stand out, uh, together with other serious war crimes in Sierra Leone, obviously in Cambodia by Saddam Hussein. Uh, these are the big uh, uh, instances of serious war crimes. Sure, sure. I'm curious, in the past 20 years or so, how many heads of states or political leaders have been charged with war crimes or crimes against humanity? And typically, what happens to them? Well, I, I, I was amazed when I recently read a publication put out by the International Center for Transitional Justice in New York mm -hmm. uh, that in the last few decades, some 67 present or former heads of state for 43 countries have been uh, 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 prosecuted. Wow. Uh, many of them have been found guilty. The prosecutions have related to both corruption and human rights violations, including war crimes. But again, the, the, the ones that have hit the headlines have been Slobodan Milosevic, who mm -hmm. was a former, former head of state, and more recently, Radovan Karadzic, um, and uh, Charles Taylor, the former head of state of Liberia. Mm -hmm. Um, and, 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 and the policy of war crimes prosecutors uh, has generally been to go, on, uh, to go as high up uh, in the chain of command, both military and civilian, uh, as the evidence justifies. I see. And typically what happens to them? They're charged um, if they're found guilty? Are they jailed or executed or does it vary? 
Well, it, well, it varies. So in, uh, in international courts today, there is no death penalty. Okay. So the maximum punishment is life in prison. I see. And uh, obviously, fixed fix periods of imprisonment. Mm -hmm. um, there have been exceptions in, in, in domestic courts. Before Rwanda fairly recently abolished the death sentence, mm -hmm. there were executions of some of the uh, people found guilty of genocide in, uh, in Rwanda. Um, and, and, and of course, uh, Saddam Hussein was executed, and uh, in the last couple of days, Chemical Ali, so-called, was executed in Iraq for, right. for crimes committed against uh, civilians. Okay. How does one go about investigating war crimes, and does the process vary from situation to situation? Well, well, certainly, war crimes are, are far more difficult to, to, to investigate than, than regular domestic crimes because they require the, the, the participation and full cooperation of governments. International courts, whether the uh, United Nations tribunals for Yugoslavia, Rwanda, um, uh, so-called mixed tribunals for Sierra Leone, Cambodia, um, the, the, these tribunals don't have, as domestic courts do, a, a police force or army mm -hmm. that are willing and able and instructed to go out and carry out their orders. So, so international courts primarily have to rely on cooperation from governments, and of course that, that makes it difficult. Uh, in addition, um, obviously the longer the, the time gap between the commission of a crime and the investigation, again the more difficult it is for the investigators. Memories fade, witnesses disappear, people die. Um, so th these are also problems that have faced some uh, international criminal courts. But, but there's no, it's difficult to generalize. Each situation, each investigation is different. Historically speaking, the accountability for war crimes is a relatively new concept. Bring us up to speed on the evolution in the past several decades. Well, w with a few minor exceptions, and I'm generalizing, until recent decades, uh, war crimes were not visited with criminal sanctions. Mm -hmm. uh, war crimes were committed by governments and not by individuals. Th that changed dramatically at Nuremberg when the Nazi leaders and later the Japanese leaders uh, were, were individually put on trial. Mm -hmm. And of course, a number were executed at, at, uh, at Nuremberg and, some of the, and there were executions arising from the uh, Tokyo trial, um, mm -hmm. uh, notably uh, General Yamashita, um, and th 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 that really has ushered in a period of, of individual criminal responsibility uh, on the part of people responsible for the commission of war crimes. Mm -hmm. Political leaders, military leaders, obviously the, the people who actually commit them uh, um, on the ground, so to speak. But, but as I indicated earlier, the, the tendency, and, and, and I fully support it, uh, is, to go to the is, is to go for leaders who really sp sponsored policies and gave orders resulting in the commission of war crimes. Okay, and now, uh, now we have the ICC, the International Criminal Court. So, um, you know, after Nuremberg, how long was it before the International Criminal Court or the ICC right. was well, established? Well, Nuremberg was sufficiently successful to, to raise an expectation that there would be a permanent International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one finds a reference to such a court in the Genocide Convention of 1948. One finds a reference to it in the Anti-Apartheid Convention of 1973. But really, the Cold War put the whole 
uh, uh, concept to sleep, mm -hmm. as it were, for almost half a century. Uh, so nothing happened until 1993 when the Security Council of the United Nations decided, for very political reasons, to set up the first ever truly international criminal tribunal, uh, that for the former Yugoslavia, and that was followed in the following year, 1994, mm -hmm. uh, by a similar tribunal for, for, for Rwanda. Okay. Those two tribunals were sufficiently successful in turn to give impetus to the movement towards a permanent international criminal court. And it was really the United States that was instrumental, firstly, in setting up the two ad hoc tribunals, Yugoslavia and Rwanda, which was the Clinton administration, and particularly the drive and enthusiasm of the, uh, uh, of the then ambassador to the United Nations, Madeleine Albright, and later Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright. Mm -hmm. uh, but she was, I've often called her the the godmother of international criminal tribunals. She, she put a lot of effort and enthusiasm into it. And from personal experience as the, effectively the first chief prosecutor of the two United Nations tribunals, I doubt whether they would have been set up, but even, even if they had been, they wouldn't have got off the ground and they wouldn't have been as successful as they have been without the strong support from the United, uh, from the United States. Okay. They, in turn, were sufficiently successful, as I say, to, to move towards a permanent international criminal court. And again, it was the United States that encouraged the Secretary General, then Kofi Annan, Secretary General of the United Nations, to call the diplomatic conference in the middle of 1998 in Rome, mm -hmm. where uh, 120 nations voted in favor of what's now known as the Rome Treaty, uh, establishing the International Criminal Court, and uh, as we sit here today, there are now 110 members of the United Nations who have ratified the Rome Treaty and who are now active parties to uh, the International Criminal Court. Okay, let's talk specifically about the United States for a minute um, in terms of the International Criminal Court um, and the international justice system. Do you think, um, you've alluded that it has been helpful to a certain extent, um, but with the Bush administration, for instance, do you think they still are as helpful as they could be, or are they hindering the process? Well, you know, I, it's, it's a course I teach. I've been teaching for the last few years, and mm -hmm. I press on my students that if, if, if you want to understand international criminal justice, you have to understand the politics. Mm -hmm. um, so you had the Clinton administration generally in favor, um, but, but towards the end, there, the, there was a change of policy mainly at the behest of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, who, who got cold feet on the International Criminal Court. They got worried about uh, American uh, military leaders and also political leaders mm -hmm. being hauled before a biased uh, international criminal court with foreign judges from strange countries and uh, runaway prosecutors uh, uh, having a bias against the United States. And President Clinton started pulling back. He approved the Rome Treaty, he signed it, but mm -hmm. he said there were aspects of it that were of concern to the United States, and for that reason he wasn't referring it to the Senate uh, for its advice and consent. That was the position at the end of the Clinton administration. Okay. Then comes the first administration of President George W. Bush, and there is strong antagonism mm -hmm. led by John Bolton strong antagonism against the International Criminal Court, and a, a compliant Congress, Republican Congress, 
went along in passing legislation that made it impossible for the United States to cooperate. Uh -huh. And in fact, steps were taken to try and kill the International Criminal Court. Um, fortunately, those steps didn't succeed. In the second four-year term of President George W. Bush, the attitude began to change. Uh -huh. And when the Security Council was asked to refer the situation in Darfur and the Sudan to the International Criminal Court, the initial reaction of the administration was n over our dead bodies. We're not uh -huh. going to confer respectability, credibility on the International Criminal Court. But when it came to the crunch, the United States abstained and therefore allowed the Security Council to refer the Darfur situation to the International Criminal Court. And that indicated a shift in policy from being strongly antagonistic to at least accepting mm -hmm. the International Criminal Court. And at the end of the uh, Bush administration, uh, the attitude changed even further uh, to the extent that the legal advisor to the State Department uh, at, uh, at that time um, said publicly that the, that, that the State Department was assisting mm -hmm. the prosecutor, uh, Mr. Campo, the, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. And it's my anticipation there hasn't been much movement in the first year of the Obama administration, but certainly having regard to who uh, he, uh, he has in his administration and his own views, I've little doubt that there will be more cooperation from the United States for the International Criminal Court. I don't believe ratification of the Rome Treaty is something we're going to see in, uh, in, 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 in the coming years. Eventually, I hope that will happen. Mm -hmm. But certainly, I think one can anticipate more cooperation in cases where it's in the interest of the foreign policy of the United States. So how do you think the ICC and the international criminal uh, justice system can become more widely accepted worldwide and therefore more effective? Well, clearly that will depend on it continuing, and as, as I think it has, uh, to demonstrate that it's a credible, unbiased, uh, professional court. Mm -hmm. Uh, with a serious, uh, unbiased, professional prosecutor and uh, office of the prosecutor, uh, even-handed, sensible judges. I think, I think the, the, the um, groundwork is being laid, and I think that will influence more, more and more countries to, to come on board, and hopefully, eventually, the United States. The United, I can't overemphasize the importance uh, of the United States cooperation, because it's political and economic muscle as the powerhouse of the world and not only can encourage other countries to come on board but even more importantly encourage countries to cooperate with the court. Very good. Thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing some of your work. Thank you for inviting me. For more information about Judge Goldstone, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.